Good morning, church. We get to sing, serve, and worship a holy God. Amen? Let's open this holy God's holy word. If you grab a Bible uh, underneath the chair in front of you, it'll just be on page two uh, this morning. Nice and simple for you. As we are continuing our series in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and we come here to the end of the creation week, and we focus our time this morning on day seven. But we'll read beginning in verse one, all the way up to chapter two, verse three. This is the word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit and which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, Plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. 
And God said, let earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished and all of the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we come before you humbled to just have heard and read and walked through and reimagined together, Lord, those first seven days of creation. Those first six where you made things and that seventh where you rested. Oh Lord, there's no one like you. There's no one else who could do this. There's no one else who has done this. You alone are the God of heaven and earth and all the things contained therein. Lord, we come to you and we want to learn from you, especially from what you have to teach us on day seven. And we pray, Lord, that we would be attentive, that we would have ears to hear all that your spirit wishes to say to us through your word. And Lord, we pray that we would learn from you and that we would seek, Lord, to enter the perfect rest that you have in this passage. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. There's a stark contrast between what we're seeing on TV or hearing on the internet or seeing on social media that's happening in this world right now 
in comparison with the picture that is painted for us in the scriptures on day seven. We look out and we see a world full of sin. We look out and we see a world full of anger, full of murder, full of wickedness, full of hatred, full of envy, full of confusion, full of division. And our hearts should ache and they do ache. The scenes that we have witnessed over the recent events have been horrendous. But perhaps with these comes one opportunity. And that is to think more clearly about the world, the type of world that we are living in. We see things going on that we want to stop, that we want to cease, that we want to end. And for us, this is still somewhat distant. Maybe for others, you have family members or friends who, who it's closer to. But for all of us, our, our hearts should ache and we should continue to cry out to God for mercy. For those who are experiencing the wars and the, and the bloodshed and the loss of life, what do you think is on their minds and on their hearts when they've just lost their loved ones? I think one of the most basic things that, is, that they are thinking about is that they just want this to end. They want relief. They want rest. They want and they need the type of rest that we see in this passage. You see, without this passage, we would look back and only see bloodshed and murder and wars and, 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 and all the this, this effects of sin. And we can begin to think if that's all there ever was, then that's all there ever would be. But if we can look back and see that there was a time before the world got like this, that it has not always been like this, then maybe there's hope for us that it won't remain like this. And that it can, in fact, go back to a better situation and a better condition that what has happened can be resolved, that what is hurting can be healed, that what is broken can be fixed, that what is divided can be united, and where there has been war and peace and bloodshed and anguish and affliction uh, and, and distress, that there can be peace, that there can be rest, that there can be a solution to the sin that is the symptom, that is the root, that is that is manifesting itself in all these acts that we are witnessing. We need rest. And when we look at this passage, we see that God is the God 
of rest. That there was a day, there was a time when it was not full of sin, not full of fighting, not full of wars, not full of rebellion against God. And that day was day seven. That day was the days before day seven too. But that day where we see God rest is a reminder to us that he is the God of rest. And if we want rest, and here my argument this morning is that we need it and should want it. So if you want it and you need it, you can only find it in the God of rest. So I want to make two points to you. The main idea is that we see two proofs that God is the God of rest so that we will seek to enter and enjoy his rest. There's some fill in the blanks for you in your bulletin, uh, in those notes, if you'd like to, uh, as we go. Um, and then at the end of our time, I, 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 before we close, I want to sort of touch on an addendum um, that's also contained in your notes uh, that will answer the question about whether Christians are required to keep the Sabbath, since it's very much related to the seventh day that we see here. But before we do that, I want to first prove to you that God is the God of rest so that you will seek him, so that you will seek rest in him. And the, the two proofs that I think we have in this passage and the second one of which I wanna trace through the scriptures, the, fir the first is that God is the God who rests. God is the God who rests. So let's begin with that first point. God is the God who rests. How do we know God is a God of rest? Well, he's a God who rests. If you do not have a God who himself rests, if he cannot provide the conditions and state and environment where, where things are truly peaceful and things are truly very good and where true rest is happening, then, then what hope is there uh, to run to him and seek to get that rest? But he has that rest. He provides that rest. He, he is the God who enjoys that rest. We see all of this in our passage today. There's no enemies. There's no strife. There's no hunger. There's no sorrow. There's no pain. There's no thirsting. Uh, none of that in our passage. God created the world in six days. Let's read about it, verses one through three. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. All that God set out to do in creating the heavens and the earth and everything in them, he accomplished in the six days that were before this seventh day. And then on this seventh day, God was finished from his work and he rested from all the work that he had done from the previous six days. And we get the summary in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 31, that God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Was there any sin? Was there any corruption? Any wars? Any evil? No. Nothing. Nothing but very good, nothing but shalom, nothing but peace, nothing but God enjoying his creation. Nothing but a very good creation. I love what uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum says. I might be butchering his last name. Uh, 
But he says, we certainly do not see creating activity from God, but it is perhaps helpful to remember that God was likely enjoying the activity and the noise of his creation swirling about him. And one can almost picture him resting beneath a fig tree, enjoying the light of the sun and the shade of the tree and the sounds of birds chirping. Creation was brimming with life and activity. The oceans were swarming, the heavens were fluttering, and the earth was being marched on by all the animals. What a day. Can you picture it? Can you see it? Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? This is the day where God rests. He adds nothing more to his creation. He just dwells with it and on it. With man as his vice regent, his image, there's no better day imaginable than this day. And so we see that he's the God who rests. He himself has the kind of rest that we should want, that we should strive, that we should long for. And realize we should realize that he alone can provide those conditions. If you're looking for rest, then you need to look to the God of rest. And you know he's the God of rest because he himself rested. This leads to the second proof that God is the God of rest. And that is that he is the God who gives rest. And we see this uh, in three parts. The first will be short, but we see that he, he, he's the God who gives rest to creation. He's the God who gives rest uh, through, um, through Moses and Joshua and David. And he's the God who gives rest through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But before we get to those next two, we have to realize in our passage, God gives rest to creation. You cannot give what you don't have. And God enjoys on this day absolute peace and rest in the perfect environment that he had made. And he and all of his creatures enjoyed that perfect harmony, that perfect unity, that perfect fellowship. There is nothing more blessed than just enjoying the paradise that God had just made together. All of that was a gift. God, you know, did not look at Adam and Eve and say, oh, look, they're doing good. They're obeying me. I think I'll, you know, make a great world, great, perfect world for them to live in. No. They didn't do anything good to deserve it. None of the animals that God had made had done anything good to, to deserve it. But God created them and they found themselves in the midst of a perfect environment harmonious, peaceful, beautiful, orderly, all of it brimming with life and enjoying fellowship with God. He is the God who gives rest. This rest is not earned, but it's a gift. And I want to spend some time tracing this theme of God being the, the God who gives rest beyond this chapter throughout the, the scriptures. And I want to do so under the heading that first God is the God who gives rest to Israel through Moses, Joshua, and David. And then that God is the God who gives rest to Israel and the nations through Jesus, the Messiah. So let's, let's continue past our chapter and consider this rest and this God who gives it. 
As you follow the story forward from Genesis chapter two, we find that God has given rest to man and woman and they end up being removed from that because they disobeyed God. They end up being deceived by the serpent and they believe a creature rather than the creator and they sin, fall short of the glory of God. And so God removes them from the garden. But before he does so, he promises that a descendant of the woman will eventually come and restore it and conquer the serpent and crush the head of the serpent and bring rest. This one who will come will conquer the enemies of the woman, which is the, uh, which is the serpent and those who follow him, uh, and will usher in the ceasing of that enmity and strife by, 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 by being victorious. And this strife in enmity ends up being the norm of the world as you keep going through the rest of the book of Genesis. We see that Adam and Eve face the consequences and look at this reality head on when their first two children fight in war and one kills the other one. Eventually evil deeds and people multiply on the earth and man's intent, the scripture says, only evil all the time. And God is grieved and decides to start over. He chooses Noah, whose name means rest to bring an end to the sinful striving of the world against God. And so he brings that through judgment by preserving eight people in an ark. And then eventually after Noah, he has a descent. He, uh, God calls a man, Abraham, who, who God chooses. And then God makes a promise to Abraham that God would make of Abraham a great nation and that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through that great nation. And in particularly Abraham's descendant who would be born in that nation. God tells Abraham to leave his land to go to Canaan, a land of promise. And Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has the 12 sons of Israel, and the 12 uh, sons of Israel are the 12 tribes of, of Israel. And at the end of the book of Genesis, they end up in Egypt, enjoying rest or not? No. They're enslaved in Egypt they end up being enslaved in Egypt and God hears their afflictions and their, 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 their cries and God has mercy on them and promises to rescue them and give them rest. And so he chooses Moses to be the means by which he'll do this. Exodus chapter six, verses two through nine, it reads this. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God almighty, but my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them when I gave them the land of Canaan, the land to which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groans of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord your God, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, and I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. That sounds pretty nice, doesn't it? If you're a slave in Egypt. But look at their response. Moses spoke this to the people, and their first response it says that they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. They were suffering, they were anguishing, and God 
who is the God who gives rest, would give them rest in the form of redemption from Egypt, taking them out, redeeming them, making them so that they were no longer Pharaoh's slaves, but bringing them into their own land and giving, making them a nation and making them their own sovereign people who would be in covenant union with God. That's the rest that God had in mind for them. And God uh, brought them to Sinai through Moses, where he made a covenant with them. And included in that covenant was the Ten Commandments. These commandments were inscribed in stone by the finger of God, the scripture says. And at the, the beginning of that, those Ten Commandments, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Notice that it's God who is the one who did that. Not because they deserved it, not because they're worthy of it, but because God is the one who gives rest. He brought them out of the house of slavery. And then God, in the middle of those 10 commandments, says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Up until that point, the Sabbath was not commanded for anyone to keep. God, God rested on the seventh day in our passage, but our passage doesn't say anything about any command for, for Adam to do the same or for Adam's descendants to do the same. And so God, in his, his foreknowledge and his plan, he, he essentially saves this, saves this idea for when he brings out a people and makes them his own as a way to set them apart and make them holy from the rest of the peoples on the earth. And the way that they would be set apart would be through this sign of the Sabbath where they, just like the God who made them and the God redeemed, who redeemed them, that they would work six days and that they would rest on the seventh day. In Exodus chapter 31, the Lord said to Moses, this is verse 12 through 17, speak to the people of Israel and say, above all you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, and the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. I love what Alan Johnson says, summarizing the significance of the Sabbath commandment for Israel. Johnson says that the Sabbath rest of creation, so that would be that seventh day that we just read about, he says that Sabbath rest of creation was temporarily and literally embodied in the Mosaic law as a memorial of God's deliverance from Egypt. And it's through keeping that sign that they would be a unique and distinct people set apart from all the rest of the nations around them. 
and that they were to weekly stop everything and remember the Lord and remember him as their creator and remember him as their redeemer who brought them out of the house of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. And so God, through Moses, gave rest to them and brought them to the promised land. Unfortunately, Moses and the first generation that traveled with them were stiff-necked and rebellious. And in their rebellion against God, God made them die in the wilderness before entering that promised land as their punishment. But after Moses, Joshua would enter in and only two people from Moses' generation, Caleb and Joshua, would, would be alive to go in with them. But they together and all the children of those who had passed away together would go in and enter the promised land and God would fulfill his promise to give them rest. And the book of Joshua shows deliverance after deliverance and they face enemies and they have to drive out enemies and they're attacked and they're afflicted by enemies. And all throughout this, God gives them rest. We see Joshua say in in chapter one, remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord commanded you saying, the Lord, your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Where are they gonna find rest? In this place that God will give them their own land. At the end of Joshua, near the end, Joshua 21, verse 44 says, the Lord God gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all the enemies had withstood them for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Who will rescue them from these attacks? Who will rescue them from these afflictions? Who will rescue them from these wars? Who will give them rest in their land? Because it's not just, you know, uh, to get someone in the land, then, oh, there's the rest. Because people can attack you on that land. And so God gives them rest from their enemies through deliverers like, like Joshua. He, he does that. By the way, Joshua's name means Lord is deliverance or Yahweh is salvation. And that's exactly what was pictured through his, his ministry. God raised him up for after Moses, they enter into that promised land of rest and even experience rest from their enemies. After uh, going down the line, uh, you have eventually David raised up and he is one of the best in the scriptures. He, he's, he's one of the most faithful men, a man who said to be a man after God's own heart. But he also was not without his sins and not without his, his failures as well. But God used David to give Israel rest. In 2 Samuel 7 verse 1, it says of David that when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, then God went and made this promise to David. This is what God said. Now, therefore... Thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall lay waste to them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. 
and I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare that the Lord will build a, for you a house. And when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from uh, as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm uh, him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. So after God had given Israel through David peace on all their sides, God made this promise that though God used David to bring peace, the final and everlasting peace that would result in Israel being protected and, and being uh, uh, able to enjoy the place where God would place them and to be disturbed no more and to not be afflicted by any enemies and to have their own kingdom and to have a king who reigns over them and who ushers in peace and righteousness, that would not come through David. It would come through David's promised son, the Messiah. And so Psalm 132 reflects on this truth. It says, Arise, O Lord, go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant David. Do not turn away the face of your anointed. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forevermore shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion, which would be Jerusalem. Uh, he has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I've desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. Her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed and his enemies I will clothe. Speaking of his enemies, the lamp or the, the horn, which is the Messiah, the son of David, his enemies I will clothe with shame. But on him, on the Messiah, his crown will shine. So we see that this is the hope. That as, the new, as the Old Testament comes to a close, the Israel and the nations are still left in suspense waiting for this promised son of David, who God, the God of rest, who not only rested, but also gives rest, would give through David's son. And what's the first, book, or first verse of the New Testament? This leads to our theme now of God giving rest through Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Matthew chapter one, verse one says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is that one that God promised to David. This is that one that descendant that God promised to Abraham. This is that one descendant that God promised would be the descendant of Eve. And in Matthew 121, we, we hear that Mary is told that she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Or that would uh, be the same as, as Joshua for he will save his people from their sins. You're gonna name him Yahweh's salvation. Isn't that, isn't that interesting that, that, that Joshua, the type of ministry that Joshua did, that he brought, his pe brought God's people into the promised land, that you have Jesus who's gonna do a very similar thing. He is going to also bring them, God's people into the promised land. 
And the way he's going to do that is by first cleansing them and saving them from their sins and then by ruling and reigning over his kingdom. Matthew 121, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. In Luke chapter one, verse 30 to 33, the angel Gabriel says to Mary, uh, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called son of the most high and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob for forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. So where is that ruler? Where is that king? Where is that Messiah? Where is that one who will bring the rest and the peace of God who will rule forever and ever? It's Jesus. And notice that the statement there of his kingdom having no end harkens back, uh, sort of echoes back to Isaiah 9 verse 7, where it's promised for us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Does that sound nice? And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is what Jesus, the son of David, came to do. But before he would set up his government... And before he would set up his kingdom and rule over it uh, in, in, in righteousness and, and conquer his enemies and, and establish peace, he would first suffer and be rejected and be despised and die as a sacrificial substitutionary offering for them, according to Isaiah 53. That he would be pierced for our transgressions, he would be crushed for our iniquities but that through him, we would receive healing. The chastisement that brings our healing would be placed on Jesus. And so Jesus in his public ministry was for the most part rejected by the nation of Israel. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But Jesus showed up and he healed and he showed up and he, 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 he taught that he himself was this promised one who would give rest. He taught that he himself was the Lord of Sabbath. If we're gonna have everlasting peace, then Jesus, and if Je then Jesus needs to conquer all his enemies, which is exactly what God promised the son of David would do. That he would conquer all our enemies. That means our sin. That means our enemy, Satan. That means all of those who are living in rebellion against God and are not willing to turn from their rebellion. We need someone to fix all of that. And that's exactly what Jesus does. That's exactly what Jesus shows that he has the power to do. Where Adam failed, uh, uh, where Adam failed in the temptation uh, to Satan, we see Jesus succeed and overcome and have victory. In Matthew chapter four, Satan comes and he seeks to tempt Jesus. Jesus does not give in for one second. He overcomes and he never sins. And not only does he never sin there, he never sins in his entire life. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He's the one who came to 
obey the law of God perfectly and thus fulfill it for all who have broken it. You see, Jesus is the one who came to save and the one who came to heal. He even did a bunch of those works on the Sabbath. You guys know that this got Jesus into trouble, right? Jesus heals Simon's mother on the Sabbath. Jesus heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. Jesus heals a man born blind on the Sabbath. Jesus heals a crippled woman on the Sabbath. Jesus heals a man with dropsy on the Sabbath. Jesus heals a man of an evil spirit on the Sabbath. Jesus heals a man who is paralyzed for 38 years on the Sabbath. And they were mad at him for these things because according to the interpretation of the legalistic Pharisees and uh, leaders of Israel at that time, that wasn't the time to do good and to heal. That was the time to rest. John 7, 23 says, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? In Luke 6, 9, Jesus says, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? What's the answer? Of course. Of course it's right to save life. You would do that with your camel. You would do that with your donkey. You would give him some water. You would help him out of a ditch. But here I am, and I'm going to heal this person. For example, Luke 13 Jesus says, ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And he said all these things, and all, hear this, all his adversaries were put to shame. What did God promise would happen through the Messiah? All his enemies would be put to shame. And it says, all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Jesus didn't do all his miracles on the Sabbath, but he did do a, bunch, a, a, a number of them, at least seven, uh, to, to show that, that he was the Lord of Sabbath and that Sabbath was for life, to give life and to help and to heal. That's the point of it. And he proved through his workings and through his miracles and through being the Lord of Sabbath that he is the one whom God has sent to give us all our Sabbath rest. Apart from him, you will not find rest. We see our Lord even, our Lord kept the Sabbath. He even kept the Sabbath on the day that he was in the tomb. His body rested. That was, that was Saturday. Crucified on Friday. Body resting in the tomb for all a Saturday, raised Sunday morning. This was our Lord. He's the Lord of Sabbath, and he did it all to bring us and to give us rest. This is the God who gives rest through his son. And so he conquered death, and he rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, sat down at the right hand of his father. He had completed everything that God had called him to do and required of him. And he is waiting there until the time when he will come and conquer his enemies. So when God wanted to give rest to a world, he gave his son. And his son invites us and even commands us to have that rest and to come to him for that rest. 
Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27 through 30, all things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows the son except the father. And no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You, you won't find that rest in keeping the law. You won't find that rest in trying to strive by your, by your own works to enter that rest. But you can have that rest if you'll by faith, put your faith in me and come to me and I will give you that rest. Jesus commands it. Come, take, learn, follow me. And just as the, 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 uh, the, the Sabbath commandment to rest had the penalty of death, if you will not come to Christ for your Sabbath rest, then the penalty is eternal death in the lake of fire. There will be no rest there. And so we have to come to Christ for that rest. Hebrews chapter four says that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God and that we find that the way to enter that rest is by having faith, persevering to the end in faith, and then waiting for the Lord to raise us from the dead to give us that rest. This is the rest that the Lord Jesus offers. He is a greater Moses. Moses delivered Israel by drowning Pharaoh and his armies in the Red Sea. Jesus brings rest for Israel in the nations from bondage to sin and Satan, and he will drown Satan in the lake of fire for all eternity. Joshua, Jesus is a better Joshua, not only bringing the people into the promised land of Canaan, but our Lord Jesus Christ will bring us into the promised land of his millennial kingdom and eternal state. And he's the greater David who will defeat all of his enemies and establish Jerusalem to be the center uh, place where God dwells with his people and where his people can enjoy his peace and his, uh, his rest. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of Sabbath rest, who God, the God of rest sent so that we can enter into his rest. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you also, just by faith in him, apart from your works, have in a sense also entered the rest because you know that that rest is coming to you and you're not, you don't have to worry and you don't have to fear and you don't have to fret. You know what you're looking forward to. You're looking forward to resurrection life for eternity. And so with that, you can have a measure, a taste of that rest and the church should be the place where that rest is seen more than anywhere else where, where there's peace, where there's forgiveness, where there's an ending of, uh, where there's a ceasing of striving and attacking and, uh, uh, and, and fighting with one another, but where there's peace. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. And when we come together and worship together to exalt the Messiah, 
on Sunday, the Lord's Day, we are a people who are celebrating and proclaiming the rest that the Messiah gives. God is the God of rest. Enter his rest by faith in his son. And may that be an encouragement to you when you look around and see that it's not very peaceful and it doesn't look good out there and it doesn't look like there's any hope for the future, but there is. It hasn't always been like this and it won't always be like this. The seventh day reminds us of that very fact. And so may we, by faith, await so that one day we will enter that promised rest. Now, as something of an addendum I want to touch on here, uh, maybe you're, you're, you're dying to uh, know for yourself whether you should keep the Sabbath or not, whether you as a, a Christian are required to keep the Sabbath. Uh, and in a, a, a book called The Sabbath in Jewish and Christian Traditions, Craig Blomberg uh, uh, has a chapter in which he summarizes sort of three main views on this issue. And so I've put them in your notes so that you can easily remember these and think about them and talk about them. But the first view is that the Sabbath is Saturday and Christians must keep it. The Sabbath is Saturday and Christians must keep it. Groups like Seventh-day Adventists or Seventh-day Baptists, or uh, there's even some Messianic Jewish groups that call themselves Torah observant, uh, various other different groups like them will say that essentially Sabbath is Saturday and Christians who are in the new covenant are still obligated to keep it. So that's the first view. The second view is the Sabbath was Saturday, but the concept of Sabbath has been transferred to Sunday the Lord's Day, and Christians must keep it. Okay, that's essentially the, the second view. The Sabbath concept is transferred to Sunday, and we keep our Sabbath now on Sunday as Christians on the Lord's Day. And many in the Reformed camps uh, uh, hold that view. A number of different uh, uh, reform, Reformers uh, held that view, but not, not all of them. And the third view is that the Sabbath is Saturday, and Christians may keep, may keep it if they want to. And it's appropriate to worship on the Lord's Day Sunday. To do so follows the example set by the early church. And so essentially to uh, kind of summarize where uh, uh, I think things are at, I think that number three, that third view, is the right view. Uh, I think the first two views make Sabbath obligatory when it is not. They make Sabbath obligatory when it is not. The Sabbath was one of 10 commandments, which were given to a people as their national charter, as their constitution, whom God delivered out of Egypt, right? What's the first thing in the 10 commandments? Is that, that I am the Lord your God who d delivered you from Egypt, right? Who brought you out of the house of slavery. So did he do that to you? Did he bring you out of Egypt? Okay, then, then maybe these words aren't addressed directly to you and are not legally binding to you. And in fact, they, they, they are not. Uh, these words were addressed to Israel. 
And so you are not under obligation to, uh, to keep them. And this is a, a huge and important thing. The scriptures uh, in the New Testament teaches that the, the law of Moses, uh, it, with its um, stipulations that God made between him and Israel, uh, ha- no longer ha- are in effect. And there's a lot of confusion on this. This is why people will be like, oh, but you're just, you're just picking and choosing. And why do you do this and, and not do that? And, and things like that. You can, you can clarify all of that if you realize that this whole thing, the Ten Commandments and the, the other 603 for a total of 613 that are contained in that, that, that law of Moses were for a distinct people in a distinct time which we are not those people in that time. And we see this in a number of places in the New Testament. When Paul talks about the Sabbath issue, uh, you know that he, uh, he, he, we see Paul mentions Sabbath only once, and that's in Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17. And he says here, that let therefore no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So essentially what's, what's happening here in Colossians is you have a, a Gentile group of, of people who Paul is addressing, and they're beginning to come under uh, the, the influence of, of uh, Jewish people who are following Jesus, who are claiming that you need to keep the Sabbath. And Paul's saying not a chance. You don't have to. These things are a shadow, but the substance is Christ. So let no one pass judgment on you in regards to food, drink, a Sabbath, or a new moon. Likewise, the book of Galatians as a whole deals with this same issue. It's broader than just the Sabbath issue. Sabbath is just one of the, one of the commandments uh, of the law of Moses. Um, but we also, uh, we also see that there's, there's um, a number of others that could be touched on as well, such as circumcision, uh, and the, these Gentile groups of believers were being taught that they need to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised in order to be righteous. And this is the type of thing that, ta- gets, that Paul gives the strongest condemnation for because they are ruining, destroying the freedom of the gospel and trying to bring people back into slavery, back into bondage under the law. Galatians chapter three, Paul says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. In Galatians chapter four, verses four and five, Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Jesus kept the Sabbath, true, because he was born under the law. And now that, now that he kept the law for us when he was born under the law and his perfect righteousness can be counted to us all by faith, we are set free and we have no need to be, nor are we under the law anymore. Galatians chapter four, verse 10 and 11, Paul says to them, you observe days and months and seasons and years. And these would be refer to the different, uh, the different days, like the Sabbath days and months, uh, new moon festivals and seasons and years. These are, these are all referring to the, the typical uh, uh, Jewish um, celebrations and, and feast days. He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I may have labor over you in vain. 
because they've become convinced they have bought the lie that in order to be more like Christ or in order to be righteous or in order to be justified or in order to grow in their righteousness, they need to keep these things. Paul says, no, you don't. And anyone who would try to tell you that is just leading you back into slavery. Galatians 4.21, Paul says, tell me you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? In Galatians 5, 6, and 7, Paul says, I say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify, I mean, how could you say that, right? If you're, just, if you're a Jew and everyone's under the law, how could Paul say that? If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts, uh, accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You can't pick and choose. If you're under the law, you're under the whole law. If you're not under the law, then you're under none of the law. And so people would say, oh, well, you guys are being inconsistent because you, you say all the rest of the other 10 commandments are, you know, you need to keep or the fourth commandment. What's going on there? You say we don't need to keep that one? The nine other commandments are given to us in the New Testament. That fourth commandment is not given to us in the New Testament. No, there, nowhere in the New Testament is there a command to keep the Sabbath. And so we do keep those other nine because they are part of the law of Christ, not because they're part of Moses, not because they are written on the, 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 uh, the tablets of stone. In fact, you know what Paul says about the, the, those words that were written on the tablet of stone? Oh man, Paul, how could you say this? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, Paul says, Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which is being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there's glory in the ministry of condemnation, what's he talking about there? He's talking about the law. The ministry of righteousness, this is the law of Christ or the, the, uh, the, uh, what New Testament believers are called to, this ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what, has one, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end, speaking of that old law, that old covenant, that Mosaic law, Mosaic law, that ministry of death, those that are carved in letters on stone, if that what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So Paul calls the letters carved on stone a ministry of death. Not because they weren't good, not because they weren't righteous, not because they weren't holy. They were all of those things, but because all it could produce in them was death. Because it says, disobey this and you, are, you die and you are cursed. We needed another ministry. We needed another covenant. We needed another way for us to be made righteous by God's grace. And it's given to us through Messiah and through his righteousness. And so those letters carved in stone are not ones that we are under anymore. And notice he says twice in that passage that they're being brought, they're brought, being brought to an end. Likewise, Hebrews chapter uh, eight, verse, verse six and verse 13, it says, but as it is Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So is there, you know, is there a difference between these two covenants? Yes, 
One of them is old, one of them is new. One of them is better than the other. We're just saying Jesus is better, right? Uh, Jesus is a better lawgiver because he gives a better covenant with better promises. And this covenant, instead of saying do and you will live, right? Says you are forgiven and now go and live. It's amazing. So this better covenant, he mediates, the covenant he mediates is better, uh, Hebrews 8 since it enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And if you jump down to verse three, it says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so the it's, it's statements like these that make it very clear that the first two views on the Sabbath issue, whether you think it's Saturday or whether they think it's Sunday, if they're saying that it's law for you, then they are mistaken. We are not under that law. In fact, Ephesians 2 verse, verse 15 says that Christ abolished the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, which makes sense. Because the sign that Israel was, was God's unique people set apart from the nations was the Sabbath. Well, you, can't, you can't be a unique set apart people if, if, uh, unless you, are, you tear that down. You can't bring both of these people together as one new man. And so all of this is why Paul can say in Romans chapter 14, one person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike, each one should be fully convinced in his, own, in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to the Lord, while, he, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the living and of the dead. You can't have that sort of freedom. You can't have that sort of optional approach to keeping Sabbath or not under the old covenant. If you start under it, what was the penalty for not keeping it? death. So how could Paul say, yeah, you can keep it if you want to. It's optional for you. He keeps one day. Another guy keeps another day. No big deal. Yes, big deal. If you're still under the law, you're dead. It's that big of a deal. But if you're not under the law, then you understand. If you've been free from the law, if you have died to the law in your union with Christ and you died a death that set you free from the law, then just like a woman who was married to a man and that old husband died, she's allowed to get a new one, right? That's essentially the argument Paul makes in Romans 7. You are dead to that law. You're free from that law. You're not obligated to that law. So friends, you really are free. You're free. And so do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. But also realize that anyone who wants to try to keep any part of the law is fine for them to do so. They have freedom to do so. Paul never says stop doing that to his Jewish brothers and sisters who are keeping Sabbath. He doesn't say you can't do that. They're totally free to do that. The problem is when you say that I'm going to do this and I must do this because I'm under the law or because I need to do this to become righteous or become more like Christ. And so therefore you too must do this as well. That's when you've crossed the line in, from grace, you've left grace and you've entered into legalism. 
I don't know about you, legalism doesn't sound like a lot of fun. So, of these views again, the first and second contain the error that ends up leading to uh, legalism. Also on number two, there's, no, there's nothing in the scriptures that indicates a transference of the Sabbath concept from Saturday to Sunday there's nothing that you can, you can point to to, uh, to to argue for that. Um, and, and even the, the earliest Christians are Jewish Christians, and they're likely keeping Sabbath and coming to gather together on the Lord's Day, which is Sunday morning, uh, to celebrate the fact that their Savior was raised on that day, and that he appeared to them on that day, and that he poured out his Holy Spirit on them on that day. And this is why, even though there's no command that we must gather on the Lord's day, that we must gather on Sunday, that we can, all all Christians all the time must only worship God together on Sunday morning, although that's not a command, that is the precedent. That is the example of the early church. That is the tradition of the early church. And when you think about the significance of that day, it makes absolute and total sense why they did that. What a what day could be better for them to remember what they share in Christ. And so we see that uh, there's total freedom in Christ to keep the Sabbath, to not, to gather as a church. You gather as a church on Saturday if you want. You gather church on Friday as you want. The early church gathered on Sunday, the Lord's Day. That was their habit. That was their practice. But there's no command forcing Christians to have to do one of those or the other. And so there's freedom in Christ. And so uh, we can rejoice whenever someone's gonna gather, whenever a local church is gonna gather together to worship God and serve him. We are pleased and happy and thankful that we have the opportunity to do that on Sunday, the, the, the Lord's day. And by God's grace, uh, we did that at 1.30 on Sunday. <laughs> and by God's grace, we've done that at 9.30 uh, on Sunday. And by God's grace, we'll continue to do that because I think it's the best day to do that. Uh, if we got to pick any day, that's the, the best one to, to do it since our Lord rose on that day. And he gave us new life through his resurrection on that day and gave us the hope of eternal life and new creation life on that first day, on that first day that he rose. That was the day that God caused supernatural light to shine in Genesis chapter one. And on that first day when Christ rose from the grave, he as the light of the world was shining and the disciples got to go out and minister and serve in light of the resurrection hope that they were given. So seek the Lord, seek his rest. You're free in Christ to do that how you please. Enjoy the Lord. Don't don't submit to any sort of requirement in that regard, but do seek him and do seek his rest and do rest in him and do remember him and do remember him as your creator and do remember him as your redeemer and do praise him and do thank him and do proclaim his rest and do tell others about his rest and do plead with others to look beyond what is here and now to a coming rest that is offered to us through Jesus. Amen. Father, we pray that you would bless your church, that they would walk in the freedom that has been given to them through Christ. We thank you that Christ kept the whole law for us, that his perfect righteous law-keeping has been counted to us all by faith,
and that he paid for our sins on the cross so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be reconciled, so that we could have your spirit dwelling in us, so that we could be at peace with you and at peace with one another, and so that we could be peacemakers and agents of rest in this world as we look forward to your rest, Lord. We thank you so much, God. We pray you encourage our hearts, Lord, and and help us to praise you now with great joy and gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen.